Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash CDH. This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Bayer has had no involvement in the selection of the speakers, the development of the activity, the agenda, or the materials. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on prostate cancer. This activity comprises a series of seven streaming episodes with Dr. Alicia Morgans. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans, and I am a GU medical oncologist from Harvard Medical School and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Welcome to this activity on exploring expert perspectives on clinical cases and compelling questions in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. The initial episode will set the stage for the subsequent episodes and cases by providing a high-level overview and summary of the current accepted standards of care in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and non-metastatic CRPC, while highlighting key ongoing clinical questions that will be the focus of the subsequent episodes. Each subsequent episode will focus on a key clinical question or dilemma framed through a patient case with consideration and review of key questions that arose during the live symposium at ESMO 2022. The first three episodes will focus on metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, while the final three episodes will focus on non-metastatic CRPC. The standards of care in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer have evolved substantially in the last few years. When it comes to non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, we're of course talking about patients who have been treated for their primary localized prostate cancer and then have developed a biochemical recurrence. That of course means that patients have a rising PSA but no radiographic evidence of metastatic disease on conventional imaging, defined as bone scans, MRIs, and CTs. In that setting, when patients are treated with androgen deprivation therapy, or ADT, and have progression of their disease by PSA only, with a rising PSA, but a castrate level of testosterone, they have, by definition, non-metastatic CRPC, as long as conventional imaging remains negative. Again, that being the scans, bone scan, CT scans, and MRIs. Importantly, 98% or so of these patients will actually have PSMA PET positive disease that may be in the pelvis or may be more distant. And of course, that incidence is going to go up when patients have a higher PSA. There have been multiple therapies approved for the treatment of non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer in the last few years, and these include apalutamide, darolutamide, and enzalutamide, which are now being widely used to prolong metastasis-free survival and overall survival in this patient population. Just as we have seen progression and changes in the non-metastatic CRPC setting, we have also seen dramatic changes in the landscape for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. What we now know is that we have to think very carefully about patients in terms of chemotherapy, fitness, disease volume, their clinical parameters, as well as their personal preferences to make our choices in the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer setting. We also know that imaging has shifted this landscape such that people are considering whether patients with low-volume metastatic disease 
may actually have high volume metastatic disease. And the consensus is still out, though really leaning in the direction of conventional imaging as still defining the volume status for patients rather than PSMA PETs. And also we're seeing that patients with apparent localized prostate cancer do have oligometastatic or sometimes even more widely metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer at the time of diagnosis. And these patients would have been diagnosed with localized disease and treated as such before the advent of PSMA PET and the integration of this imaging strategy into our landscape. The guidelines for treatment of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer have dramatically changed as well to keep up with our new treatment algorithms and our imaging strategies. As we see here, we really need to think about whether patients have high volume of disease or low volume of disease, as that definition will often push us in the direction of different combinations. High volume disease is defined as patients having four or more bone metastases with at least one outside of the axial skeleton or visceral metastatic disease. And these patients need to be considered for potential triplet therapy in today's landscape. Triplet therapy includes chemotherapy with docetaxel times six cycles. And so patients need to be assessed for their chemo fitness as well. And triplet therapy as we define it now for chemo fit patients includes ADT, six cycles of docetaxel chemotherapy at 75 milligrams per meter squared, plus either abiraterone acetate and prednisone or darolutamide. And two studies led to these combinations demonstrating improved progression-free survival and overall survival for this, this population. When it comes to low volume disease, patients are generally treated with an AR targeted agent and ADT, and also could receive triplet therapy with docetaxel chemotherapy for motivated patients, patients with concerning features of bad disease or more aggressive disease, or if if the physician thinks that this is de novo metastatic disease that really does have poor prognosis and needs more intensified therapy. We do need to think also about radiation to the prostate, which we know improves overall survival based on the STAMPEDE trial, in patients with low volume metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. The key takeaways for non-metastatic CRPC are that we need to intensify our treatment with either enzalutamide, apalutamide, or darolutamide for the prolongation of MFS and OS for our patients. The key takeaway for metastatic hormone-sensitive disease is that in this rapidly shifting landscape, ADT alone is no longer an option for treatment of the vast majority of our patients. We need combination systemic treatments, including things like ADT and AR targeted agent combinations and triplet therapies with ADT, docetaxel, and ABI or darolutamide to really harness the benefits for our patients. And we do need to think about radiation of the prostate for patients with low volume metastatic hormone sensitive disease. Thank you for joining me. Please stay tuned for the next episode where we'll consider patient cases. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans, and welcome to episode two, where we're individualizing treatment of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, considering candidates for intensified treatment regimens. This patient is a patient who is 61 years old, who was diagnosed with prostate cancer after having an abnormal digital rectal exam and a PSA of 181. Imaging demonstrated that he had six bone metastases on a bone scan, and his CT found that he had four lymph nodes, in the pelvis, as well as areas of metastatic disease in bone that were all greater than two centimeters. His Gleason score at diagnosis was four plus three equals seven. So 
not necessarily high-risk disease, but certainly he had de novo metastatic disease at the time of diagnosis, demonstrating that he had high-risk disease. And he has high-volume disease due to the number of bone metastases. When we think about which regimen we would use to treat this patient, our options include things like ADT alone, ADT and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, ADT and docetaxel, or ADT and docetaxel and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, specifically abiraterone or darolutamide. The APCCC is a consensus panel that often considers areas of gray data where we don't know the exact right answer, and they reviewed the treatment options for patients with high-volume metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Importantly, ADT alone was not recommended by any of the APCCC panel because it's really not the treatment choice for the vast majority of our patients. They did recommend ADT and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor or androgen deprivation therapy docetaxel and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor for the vast majority of patients. And what we can see is that over time, the number of patients being recommended to receive triplet therapy with ADT, DOSI, and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor seems to be going up within the APCCC. When considering the benefit of triplet therapy, the PEACE-1 study is one that really informs us on this particular issue. This study included patients with de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and treated them with ADT, docetaxel, and abiraterone versus ADT and docetaxel alone. It was actually a relatively complex study that also included radiation, but we're going to put that aside for now and also put aside the fact that not all patients received docetaxel. The primary message here is that radiographic progression-free survival was prolonged with the addition of abiraterone to ADT and docetaxel versus ADT and docetaxel alone for the population overall. And overall survival was also improved, and this is statistically significant, in the high-volume metastatic hormone-sensitive population. It is not yet mature in the low-volume metastatic hormone-sensitive population. The PEACE-1 trial also reported relatively recently information on older patients versus younger patients who were treated within the study. What they found was that the benefit was relatively maintained for older and younger patients, but that older patients did seem to have a lower benefit overall than those with, that were younger in this particular analysis, both in terms of radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. This is possibly due to increased toxicity that older patients felt, as this was reported to be more frequent in the older population than in the younger population but certainly among patients who are fit to receive chemotherapy and willing, and it is their preference, even for older patients, tolerance of docetaxel in a triplet therapy combination is possible and may certainly benefit them. IRISENS is the study that assessed ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide versus ADT and docetaxel and found that there was an overall survival benefit to that triplet combination versus ADT and docetaxel alone. Recently, there was information reported on volume status within the RSNs trial that demonstrated that the high-volume patients certainly appeared to have substantial benefit from the triplet therapy versus ADT and docetaxel. Low-volume patients did not have a statistically significant improvement in overall survival. However, this data was significantly underpowered because there were far fewer patients in this study with low-volume disease than with high-volume disease. And there is an apparent separation of the curves suggesting a benefit even in low-volume patients enrolled in the trial in terms of overall survival. There was also an assessment within RSNs on high-risk versus low-risk disease 
that similarly showed a substantial benefit across both of these risk categories to the combination of ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide versus ADT and docetaxel alone. So to consider the patient from the beginning, the final prescription for this patient is to consider ADT, docetaxel, and either abiraterone acetate and prednisone or darolutamide in a triplet combination, as this patient is young, otherwise healthy, and certainly chemo-fit, and this patient has de novo metastatic, high-volume, uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and can benefit from triplet therapy. We should consider triplet therapy, particularly for patients with high-volume and de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Additional updated data suggests that ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide is similarly beneficial in low-risk and high-risk patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive disease and appears also to benefit patients regardless of whether they have high or low-volume disease. Thank you for joining me. Please stay tuned for the next case. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans, and welcome to Episode 3, where we're going to navigate common challenges in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and really think practically about how we can implement an intensified treatment regimen. This next case is an 82-year-old gentleman who comes in with intermittent right hip pain. He has a BMI of around 32 kilograms and a PSA of 332. He undergoes a bone scan that demonstrates five bone metastases and a CT scan that demonstrates enlarged lymph nodes and likely small areas of lung metastasis. His Gleason score is nine. He undergoes a frailty assessment with the G8 and is found to have a score of 11, which is significantly below the score of 14, which is used to understand which patients really meet that criteria for being frail. He also has a history of diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia, and these are well controlled with medications. He does have limited social supports. What would you recommend to treat this patient? ADT alone? ADT and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, ADT and docetaxel, or ADT, docetaxel, and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. In this case, it's really important to think about whether this patient who meets criteria for frailty and has limited social supports is really going to be a chemotherapy candidate. We have to consider this even though the patient meets criteria for de novo metastatic disease and even though he meets criteria for high volume metastatic disease. One thing that was considered at the ESMO 2022 conference was whether we could use docetaxel in patients who were more frail or elderly by reducing or altering our dosing schedule. The CABASTI trial included patients with metastatic CRPC who were identified as potentially being eligible for this dose alteration study, and they were randomized to, treat, to treatment with standard dose cabazitaxel at 25 milligrams per meter squared Q3 weeks or cabazitaxel at 16 milligrams per meter squared Q2 weeks, and these were both given with GCSF. The primary endpoint was really the incidence of grade greater than three neutropenia measured at the nadir and neutropenic complications, with secondary endpoints including disease control endpoints. What they found is that the incidence of neutropenia grade greater than or equal to three and neutropenic complications was significantly lower in the lower dose cabazitaxel treatment arm that was 16 milligrams per meter squared given every other week. At ESMO 2022, we heard many questions about how to best support patients through their treatments, especially if we weren't necessarily going to alter the dose or the schedule of their chemotherapy. I think importantly, we discussed the, the need for multidisciplinary care, including urologists, medical oncologists, sometimes radiation oncologists, 
as well as nurses, nurse practitioners, and other providers, including pharmacists, who might help us keep our patients safe and keep them with the guidance that they need to really ensure that they have the best quality of life and the safest quality of life while they undergo treatment. Importantly, these care teams can also include nutrition supports, social, social supports like social workers, as well as physical therapists and others to help maintain the physical function of our patients. So when we consider this patient and we consider his G8 score and, of course, the interventions that we're going to do to reduce his frailty and improve his social and functional status, I still think it's important for us to recognize whether or not this individual is really the right person to receive triplet therapy. In this case, this patient received ADT and an AR signaling inhibitor with standard couplet therapy rather than receiving triplet therapy with docetaxel. And this was in an effort to maintain his physical function and to not overburden him with increased toxicity related to chemotherapy. The key clinical summaries for this section and for this patient include an emphasis on understanding the importance of multidisciplinary care and the way that it works in all of our patient settings, but especially for patients who are frail and who have limited social supports. It's also important that we recognize that this multidisciplinary care team can include members of other physician groups, as well as other support groups, including social workers, nutritionists, dietitians, physical therapists, counselors, and others to help support our patients in both their physical, mental, and clinical medical needs throughout their treatment course. Thank you for joining me. Please stay tuned for the next case. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans, and welcome to episode four, Maximizing Quality of Life in Metastatic Hormone-Sensitive Prostate Cancer, Effective Monitoring and Therapy Management of Intensified Treatment Regimens. For our next case, we have a 73-year-old man who presented with low back pain. His PSA was 59, and his bone scan demonstrated four metastases in the pelvis and two in the spine, and he also had areas of lymph node metastasis on a CT scan. His Gleason score was 9. He was treated initially with ADT and docetaxel and abiraterone as a triplet therapy because he was very functional and chemo fit and did come in with the novo metastatic high-volume prostate cancer. He developed fatigue during that time and was referred to physical therapy so that he could continue his treatment and he was very motivated to do so. The physical therapy seemed to help, but as he continued on and completed his docetaxel, he did develop fluid retention. And we then found ourselves wondering, what can we do for this patient? Because the fluid retention in this case was considered to be likely related to treatment with abiraterone. So what would we do for this patient? Would we shift and give ADT alone? Would we give ADT and an alternate AR signaling inhibitor? Or would we think about ADT and emphasizing his response to docetaxel since we have to stop the, the abiraterone and give him additional cycles of docetaxel? So when we think about the adverse events that are expected with a triplet therapy combination, of course we think about those docetaxel side effects, but this patient has moved past docetaxel. We then think about the ADT abiraterone side effects, and as we saw with this patient, he did have fatigue, which is relatively common for many of our treatments, but more unique to abiraterone, he had fluid retention, which is something that we sometimes see in patients treated with abiraterone, and it can be a complication that can make treatment and management of heart failure and other comorbidities more challenging. We have some data from the Arisense trial, which really demonstrated that ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide as a triplet combination was superior in terms of overall survival to treatment with ADT and docetaxel. 
And because we did complete the docetaxel in this setting, we could consider altering this patient's treatment to now being ADT and darolutamide as the alternate triplet option that we have for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. When we think about quality of life during treatment with darolutamide, it is interesting to recognize that fatigue is certainly something that is reported and picked up on those CTCAE adverse events, but other, uh, other adverse events generally seem to occur at rates that are relatively similar to treatment with placebo in the placebo arm of the ARISENS trial. So it is something that makes us think that perhaps the adverse event deficits that patients experience may be relatively low, again, as compared to the placebo arm. When we think about patient-reported outcomes on their health-related quality of life, there is some data to suggest that there was a delay in time to worsening of disease-related physical symptoms and pain interference with darolutamide versus placebo in the trial as well. So the adverse events and the patient-reported quality of life both suggest that darolutamide is a tolerable agent that can be used in triplet effectively both from a disease control standpoint, but also in terms of maintaining and solidifying a patient's quality of life to allow them to enjoy the time that they have. So to go back to this patient's case and to think about what to do for a patient who is receiving triplet therapy, and in this case, this was ADT, docetaxel and abiraterone, but develops a complication specifically related to that abiraterone part of the treatment, we can consider that our options include ADT alone. But in this case, because that patient is fit and really deserves intensified therapy to maintain his robust response to his initial treatment, we should think about switching to darolutamide in this situation and maintaining that darolutamide until disease progression as it was in the ARISENS trial. Key clinical summaries from this section include emphasizing a multidisciplinary approach that considers interventions to reverse complications like fatigue, the development of frailty and depression, and other complications from the treatments they're receiving to support them to continue to receive their treatments and to switch therapies when needed to continue their therapy that's directed against their cancer. And we also think about using alternative medications as we did in this case, where we switch from abiraterone to darolutamide or we may have to switch from one drug to a different drug in different settings to really ensure that intensified therapy is continued when patients develop a complication that is specific to a particular agent in their regimen. Discontinuation of different AR-targeted agents does not mean we should be using ADT alone, and really ensuring the best disease-directed therapy while maintaining quality of life is critical to our patients and to our care of them. Thank you for joining me. Please stay tuned for the next case. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans, and welcome to Episode 5, Intensifying the Approach to Non-Metastatic CRPC, Decision-Making Based on Data. Let's consider a patient case. This is a 73-year-old man who came in initially with hematuria and was found on workup to have a PSA of 14.3. Imaging demonstrated that he had no evidence of metastatic disease, and he was treated for localized disease with external beam radiation therapy and two years of ADT. He did not recover his testosterone, and actually, he had a nadir PSA that remained undetectable, but his testosterone remained in the castrate level. Ultimately, he developed a rising PSA over time, and as we can see, it's reached 13.4, but still he has castrate levels of testosterone. He underwent imaging scans with a CT scan and bone scan, and these were negative for evidence of metastatic disease. This patient has non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, and there are three large registration trials that led to the approval of apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide for the treatment 
of non-metastatic CRPC. All of these studies included patients who had non-metastatic CRPC with a PSA that was rising in the absence of metastatic disease on imaging. Patients were randomized two to one to receive apalutamide versus placebo, enzalutamide versus placebo, or darolutamide versus placebo in these three phase three trials. And in each, they were, there was a benefit in terms of metastasis-free survival and overall survival to the intensified treatment with ADT and one of those AR signaling inhibitors versus ADT alone. The regulatory use of metastasis-free survival was new when these studies came out. And these were the first drugs that were approved in prostate cancer on an MFS endpoint. This is really important because we recognize as a field that this MFS endpoint really was describing something that was clinically relevant and actually was shown to be relevant to the disease as well because MFS was actually closely tied to prolonged overall survival in each of these studies as well. So let's return to our patient case. And this again was a 73-year-old gentleman who came in with localized disease that was treated with external beam radiation therapy and a long course of ADT. He did not recover his testosterone. And when his PSA started to rise, his imaging was all negative. Again, he had non-metastatic CRPC. So this patient benefited from the addition of an AR signaling inhibitor, either apalutamide, enzalutamide, or darolutamide to his ADT backbone as this was going to be shown to prolong metastasis-free survival and hopefully prolong his life as well. Key clinical summaries from this section include intensification by adding one of the AR signaling inhibitors to ADT. This is really the standard of care in terms of prolonging metastasis-free survival and overall survival in this patient population. Quality of life data that was not presented just now also suggests a maintenance or improvement in quality of life for these patients. As we are intensifying treatment for these patients and ensuring that they can tolerate their treatment, we also have to think about things like comorbidities and drug-drug interactions and recognizing which of these agents have different drug-drug interactions and which can affect different comorbidities is going to be critical in keeping our patients safe during treatment. Thank you for joining me. Please stay tuned for the next case. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans and welcome to episode six where we're talking about modernizing the imaging and treatment of non-metastatic CRPC and incorporating novel patient and disease information into practice. Let's start with a patient case. You may recognize this patient, a 73-year-old gentleman who was initially presenting with hematuria, found to have an elevated PSA, and imaging demonstrated that he had localized prostate cancer. He was treated with radiation therapy and two years of ADT. He had a normalization of his PSA to an undetectable level, but did not recover testosterone production, maintained castrate levels of testosterone. Over time, he eventually developed a rising PSA and imaging remained negative. And when I say imaging, I mean conventional imaging with bone scans and CT scans. And in this case, there was no radiographic evidence of metastatic disease on those traditional scans. However, we know that imaging is rapidly advancing and is absolutely transforming our non-metastatic CRPC space. PSMA PET scans are now routinely used in the non-metastatic, hormone-sensitive, and castration-resistant setting for things like metastasis-directed therapy. When we think about non-metastatic CRPC and our application of therapies, we have to make our decisions based on the conventional imaging when we think about when we should intensify therapy. And importantly, we should not use PSMA PET scans to say that we should not intensify therapy. 
A relatively recent study demonstrated that for patients with non-metastatic CRPC that were non-metastatic by conventional imaging, PET imaging was positive for either local recurrence or distant metastatic disease in about 98% of them. So the majority of our patients, the ones that meet criteria for non-metastatic CRPC, will have PET-positive imaging. This is not a reason not to intensify our systemic therapy, but may be an opportunity to add metastasis-directed therapy onto that patient's treatment plan. So to consider our patient who is here with us with non-metastatic CRPC, again defined by conventional imaging, should this patient have a PSMA PET scan? That's a complicated question and a complicated answer. And for this patient, if we are thinking about both intensifying our systemic therapy and potentially adding on metastasis-directed radiation therapy, we absolutely can consider a PSMA PET, but we should not use a PSMA PET as a reason not to intensify our systemic therapy with one of the androgen receptor signaling inhibitors that we know can prolong metastasis-free survival and overall survival for our patient. Metastasis-directed therapy was frequently discussed at ESMO 2022 and in conversations around these types of presentations. We really talked about how the rates of metastasis-directed therapy vary by region, and some people definitely feel more comfortable with metastasis-directed therapy than others. However, when we can radiate all of the areas that are visualized with a PSMA PET and ensure that we are really trying to target every area that we can see, we could potentially be shifting the disease course and hopefully improving things for our patients. Time will tell and data will tell whether we're actually doing the right thing and studies are still investigating metastasis-directed therapy. The bottom line though is we should absolutely intensify our systemic therapies for any patient with non-metastatic CRPC as we know that systemic therapy intensification with an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor can prolong metastasis-free and overall survival. The key clinical summary for today is that metastasis-directed therapy is increasingly being integrated into our treatment plans, whether we're in Europe, Australia, even the United States. But evidence suggests that if we're going to use metastasis-directed therapy, this would be an add-on, something that is still being investigated, and we need to rely on the level one evidence that we have for patients with non-metastatic CRPC. That evidence suggests that intensification of systemic therapy can prolong MFS and OS and can maintain quality of life for our patients. Thank you for joining me. Please stay tuned for our final case. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans, and this is Episode 7, Personalizing Regimens and Preserving Quality of Life in Non-Metastatic CRPC, Taking Safety Profiles into Consideration. Let's start with a case. This is a 67-year-old man who, on a regular checkup, was found to have a PSA of 7.3. Imaging was negative for evidence of metastatic disease, and he was diagnosed with locally advanced high-risk prostate cancer. He was treated with a radical prostatectomy and was noted to have a medical history of atrial fibrillation and hyperlipidemia. After treatment, his PSA level eventually rose due to relapse of disease, and he was at that time treated with salvage radiation therapy and ADT. His testosterone did not recover after treatment with ADT, and his PSA eventually did start to rise again. His PSA doubling time was very short, only four months, and again, his testosterone remained in the castrate level. He underwent CT and bone scan, and these were negative for evidence of metastatic disease. 
As we think about systemic treatment intensification with ADT and an AR signaling inhibitor, again, apalutamide, enzalutamide, or darolutamide, we have to think about the adverse event profiles, particularly in patients who have multiple comorbidities. When we look at these and think about them, we have to recognize the things that are most common, which include things like fatigue, which could be seen with any of our AR signaling inhibitors, as well as the risk of falls, hypertension, rash, thyroid disorders, and other effects. So it's important for us to understand the safety profiles of each of these agents as we're making shared decisions with our patients to start one of the medications. Drug-drug interactions are also critical to consider and certainly must be thought about in terms of all of the medications that a patient is currently taking for other comorbid illnesses. Pharmacies can certainly be helpful when we're trying to run these interactions through, and it is really important to know which medications are going to be safe and can be continued with just increased monitoring versus which may have an absolute contraindication for combination with another medication used for a comorbid illness. A recently presented study, the DEER study, looked at rates of discontinuation and real-world use of darolutamide, enzalutamide, and apalutamide for patients with non-metastatic CRPC. In this study, they found that the proportion of patients starting treatment with darolutamide increased during the study period which was actually different with enzalutamide and apalutamide, which tended to decrease or remain stable over time. Discontinuation rates were also different, with darolutamide being discontinued less frequently than enzalutamide and apalutamide, which were continued or discontinued at a relatively similar rate. The most common reasons for non-metastatic CRPC treatment discontinuation included adverse events, progression to metastatic CRPC or death, or switch to another androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. A lower proportion of patients treated with darolutamide experienced any of these events than in the other two treatment cohorts. So when we think about this patient case and we recognize that this patient has non-metastatic CRPC with a PSA doubling time of less than 10 months, it's important for us to recognize that we need to intensify systemic therapy to really improve metastasis-free and overall survival for this patient. Our key clinical summary is that we need to consider comorbid illness and drug-drug interactions when we choose the right combination to add to ADT. The options include apalutamide, darolutamide, and enzalutamide. They all have different drug-drug interaction profiles and interactions with comorbidities, as well as adverse event profiles. Keeping these in mind can help us make the best decision. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.